This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. And this Feast of Epiphany celebrated on January the 6th, coincidentally the same time as our Georgian Christmas, is a time to celebrate the manifestation of Jesus to the world. Jesus as the light of the nations, and the story that is associated with this feast is the one that uh, Timothy just read for us from the Gospel of Matthew, the adoration of the Magi. These strangers... These totally unexpected, mysterious strangers who seem to emerge from the sands of the desert one afternoon, one evening in Jerusalem. These people that even today we know very little about. Later, Christian tradition kind of encrusted the story with three details, decided these were three kings. They gave them names, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. They decided they were kings from Persia and India and Ethiopia. None of that is actually in Matthew's story, none of those details, and we really are quite unsure about who these characters are. And our best educated guess is that these were Persian or Babylonian astrologers. They were certainly not Jewish, they were pagans, perhaps even Zoroastrians. And these Persians or Babylonians, this part of the world, these, these astrologers were famous for their skill in observing and identifying and mapping and cataloging and recording and even using mathematical calculations to predict the movements of the stars and the planets. And many historians of science today view the development of astronomy in Persia and Babylonia hundreds of years before Christ as the very first scientific revolution. And there's kind of an overlap in these times between astronomy and astrology. These kind of priestly figures were studying the skies for religious and even magical reasons because they believed that the movements of the stars and the overlapping of the planets was a way of divining the future, a way that was much less bloody and messy than cutting open an animal and, and analyzing its intestines, and much less susceptible to human interference. Now, I want to underline today, in case you're not quite clear, that astrology and divination are practices that God clearly forbids. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God describes astrology as one of the detestable ways of the pagans that God is driving out before the people of Israel. And as the people of God, they shouldn't be going towards these abominations because the future is safe in the hands of their covenant God. And we shouldn't be turning towards magical rituals instead of trusting the Lord who cares for us. And what's so unusual about this story in Matthew, and very unexpected in the Bible, is that somehow God seems to be speaking through this astrology and divination and using it as a sign to, to point people towards Jesus. Because one night, as these astronomers slash astrologers are gazing at the night sky with their instruments and their tablets, 
They see something that none of their tables and none of their calculations had predicted. There is a new star rising. It's some kind of heavenly portent, and they go again through their calculations. They consult the generations of astrologers before them. They discuss with one another. They watch and track this over time. And somehow they come to the conclusion together, these magi, that this star is a sign that the king of the Jews has been born. Now, there have been natural explanations offered for this heavenly occurrence. Was it perhaps Halley's Comet? Was it a supernova? Was it uh, a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter? More likely, I think, based on the strange way that this light in the sky hovers and comes to a stop over the house in Bethlehem, this is something miraculous and supernatural and completely out of the ordinary way of things, the normal laws of nature. This star is clearly a sign from God. And a remarkable example of how the Holy Spirit can speak to people in other religions within the context of very pagan and even demonic practices to point people towards Jesus. The Spirit blows where he wills. And we need to remember that we can never put any limit on God's ability to reach people no matter how far they are away from the Christian faith. I'm not saying this is the ordinary way that God works, that we should be directing people toward these practices, but God is completely sovereign and completely free and able to speak to people and shine his light no matter where they are. My old roommate, Doug, came to the Lord while he was tripping on acid, I think, some kind of drug. I don't remember which one it was. He was having a really bad trip, and he kept on uh, hallucinating that he was falling over a cliff to his death. And it wouldn't end. He just, it was on a loop. He just kept on falling over this cliff again and again and smashing on the rocks below. And then somehow it was revealed to him that this was his life, and he needed to find Jesus and turn to him immediately. And that's how he came to the Lord. Now, please don't use that story as a justification from the pulpit for doing acid, okay, teenagers? That's not the point. The point is that God can reach anyone, anywhere, at any time if he chooses to. That should give us tremendous faith that however far people seem to be from the church and however resistant people seem to be to the gospel and however absorbed and devoted people seem to be to false and even demonic practices, they may in fact be far closer to the kingdom than we even realize. Here these men are, perhaps women, looking at the skies. The skies, which Psalm 19 says, are constantly declaring the glories of God. Day by day and night by night, the heavens are pouring forth speech pointing all human beings to the creator who has made them, who has sustained them, and who is calling them to himself. And theologians call this general revelation. Through creation, God is speaking and he's revealing himself to all human beings so that no one is without excuse. 
God really does speak through creation. God really does shout in the stars. General revelation is real, but it is partial. It leads people so far, but not far enough to salvation in Jesus. For anyone to get saved, general revelation must go on towards special revelation. And we can see even in the story how the star only leads these magi so far. They have to go to Jerusalem. They have to go to the Jews. And they need to hear the prophecy recorded in Scripture in the special revelation of God. Because they know the time, but not the place. They know there's a king, but he has no name. And yes, there is a shadowy knowledge of God in other religions among people who don't even know the name of Jesus. There's a knowledge of God revealed in nature in creation, but it's not enough to bring people into a saving relationship with God. How can people believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if there was no one to preach Jesus to them? You know, there were remarkable stories, and there have been for years in the Muslim world where people are far from uh, any possible encounter with the gospel, humanly speaking, where Muslims are having dreams where Jesus is revealed to them as some kind of shining figure, and their hearts are gripped. And I've heard and seen many of these stories, and always in those stories, the dream is powerful and effective. But it's not enough. And even in the dream, people are told, you need to go find a Christian, you need to go find a church, you need to go find a pastor, and ask them to explain the meaning of the dream and take you by the hand and lead you over the threshold into the kingdom. And the Magi have some kind of strange, vague revelation from God. And what's amazing to me in this story is that they're not content just to update their catalog and change the data in the computer for future generations and go back to their universities and to their studies and to their temples. They actually set off on a long, dangerous, arduous journey, not content just to know that there's a king of the Jews somewhere in some tiny, insignificant country. They feel this irrepressible need to go find this person who's been prophesied in the stars and bow down and worship him. You have to wonder, why would these people upend their comfortable lives in a powerful empire and go to some tiny little backwater to find a king who would seem to have no relevance to their lives? I'm not sure if the Magi could even answer that question clearly themselves. But God had put something in their hearts, some desire, some longing. And I see these magi as an example of genuine seekers, people of good faith who are willing to follow the star wherever it leads them, however long it takes, no matter where it goes, we are going to follow this strange prompting that we have. And even today, there are many genuine seekers after goodness, after beauty, after truth, 
who have a kind of spiritual hunger that we can only explain as something that the Holy Spirit has stirred inside of them. And they find themselves fumbling and groping their way in the darkness, in the fog, towards God. And they only have the tiniest of lights, but they are making full use of the light that God has given them to draw them to Jesus. Ask, seek, knock. That is what these people are doing. The true spiritual seekers. I'm not talking about the self-indulgent spiritual quest for self-discovery and self-expression, which is just very narrow and cramped. That's no journey of danger and adventure and discovery. We're not even leaving ourselves, let alone our home. I'm talking about the hunger for worship that these magi had. There was something and someone great and awesome and glorious and majestic. They didn't know his name. They didn't know exactly where he was, but they felt this desire to worship him, that somehow the meaning of their lives was going to be found in bowing down and prostrating and offering what they had to this person that God was calling them to. It's a quest of worship, a quest that God calls all of us on. And I think one question we need to ask ourselves as the people of God is, is this. Is the church, is our church, the kind of community that welcomes seekers like this? People with strange stories, people who smell like marijuana, who ask weird questions, who upset the normal, stable order of things. People who are God-haunted souls, who make us uncomfortable with the urgency and the fervency of their own quest for God. And I think we need to ask ourselves, if we are seeking Jesus ourselves with the same fervency and the same determination and the same courage as the Magi and as pagan seekers of Jesus in the centuries afterwards. So here we are in Jerusalem, and one evening, this caravan appears out of the desert, and these strange foreigners wearing weird clothing are walking the streets, asking shopkeepers and asking passers-by an even stranger question. Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And very understandably, these magi assume that the king of the Jews has been born. He's in the capital city, Jerusalem. He's, he's crawling around on the floor of some golden palace, and that's where we'll find him. And Matthew tells us that when word of this came to King Herod, who kept his ears close to the ground, wanting to know what the rumblings were, the political situation in the city, that Herod was disturbed. He was agitated and troubled. Because, you know, as we've seen in, in Kazakhstan this last week, it doesn't take much to upset a regime. Fuel price protests in some small corner of the country, suddenly the whole government is about to collapse. Here's Herod, Herod the Great, 
He's a client king of Rome. He's, he's reigned on his throne. He's kept it through brutality and violence for 33 years, even though he's not even a full Jew. He's half Edomite. And Roman historians tell us that in his later years, Herod became increasingly frightened and paranoid of traitors surrounding him. He had one of his, one of his wives, Mariamne, executed, and two of his sons, Aristobulus and Alexander, decapitated. His own sons, he was paranoid that they were going to assassinate him and take over the throne. Herod knew that power is fragile, and it requires constant vigilance by the political authorities, by the strong man, to hold on to his throne. And now, to Herod's alarm, dangerous questions are being asked by foreign elements in the city about someone who has just been born king of the Jews. And Herod knows there can't be two kings of the Jews. And so he summons the religious leaders, the establishment, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And these men are obviously very spiritually complacent people. And they've made their peace with Herod, and they've made their peace with Rome. They're very comfortable with the regime. And honestly, these leaders are no more keen than Herod is for wild messianic hopes of the common people. They seem to be just as agitated and disturbed as Herod and the whole city are about the turmoil that, that might be coming. It's amazing in the story, I think, the contrast, right? Here are these noble pagans emerging from the desert with shining faces, with open arms, with true hearts, eagerly and even somewhat naively seeking the king of the Jews. And then here are the people of God who should have been far beyond these pagans, and yet God's people are closed and suspicious and cynical and agitated. And so Herod asks the senior pastors in the city, so tell me, you Bible scholars, where is the Messiah going to be born? And there's no hesitation. They all know the answer. Bethlehem of Judea, they say. They quote Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is just a little town five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a nowhere place, known for nothing, except, of course, for being the birthplace of David. Centuries and centuries ago, David, the greatest and most glorious of the kings of Israel, along with his son Solomon. And it's in Bethlehem, this small, inconspicuous, irrelevant little town, that the prophecy says, here is where the Messiah is going to be born. The prophesied true king and the true liberator of Israel is going to arrive and appear here. The king of Judah, the king of kings of all the nations of the earth, a king who is going to be very unlike Herod, who's going to shepherd his people, Israel. I just want to observe in passing this progression where the natural revelation of the star leads to the special revelation of Scripture, which then points beyond itself to Jesus as the supreme revelation of God. 
what God wants to show human beings, what all people most need to see and behold and fall down and worship is his son, Jesus Christ. And all of creation and all of scripture with one voice are saying, look to Jesus, behold him, worship him. And Herod is just as eager to encounter the child as the Magi are for quite different reasons. Because once he's figured out where the child is going to be born, he summons the Magi for a private audience, a secret audience. Herod is very careful to guard how the information is flowing in Jerusalem. He summons them and he craftily extracts from them the exact time the star appeared. In order, as we see, so he knows the range of babies that need to be killed in order to quash this threat. And these foreigners are so innocent and so naive and so gullible. These are people of such pure hearts, they don't even suspect cynicism from Herod, that Herod just sends them off without, you know, the government tourist guide to actually secret agents. Herod is so confident that these gullible foreigners will return to him, he just sends them off five or six miles down the road, please return with your GPS coordinates so that I too may go and worship this king of the Jews who I am only too glad to allow to take over my throne. The real plan, of course, is to massacre anyone who stands in his way. And if we had read just a little further in Matthew chapter 2, we'd hear this horrible tale of Herod's troops massacring all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old. We have to think to ourselves, how foolish of Herod to try to stop the plan of God. It's like standing in the way of a locomotive. And think about this. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, Herod had nothing to fear. If Jesus was the Messiah, there was nothing Herod could do to stop it. Herod believes the prophecies and yet does not want to submit to Jesus. In fact, as we'll find out in Matthew, God's word will stand. God's promises will not fall. The king of the Jews will die. He will be executed. But at a time and at a place of his own choosing in a way that serves God's purposes, not the purposes of any human political rule. So the Magi and their caravan head off to Bethlehem. And now the star, which seems to have vanished in kind of the spiritual smog surrounding the capital of Jerusalem, reappears on the road ahead of the Magi over Bethlehem until it stops over the place where the child was. And Matthew tells us, when the Magi saw the star stopping, they were overjoyed. Their arduous journey has reached its goal. Their quest is almost at an end. And when they go into the house and they see Mary with the child Jesus, they bow down and worship him. It's an amazing scene to imagine. Some dingy apartment, a little toddler standing there in his diaper with his fingers in his mouth, and these foreigners prostrate on the floor, bowing before him 
as the true king. And they're not content with just physical outward gestures of worship. They want their worship to cost them something. And so Matthew tells us they open their treasures and they give to this little king gold and frankincense and myrrh. Costly gifts. Gifts fit for a king. We don't know what the Magi felt or intended, whether they were just paying homage to a human king or whether there was in their hearts some kind of worship to God's divine son. We can't help seeing in the story, though, the very first fruits of the Gentiles streaming towards Jesus. The Magi are the very first Gentiles in the Gospels who come and worship Jesus. And they stand at the very front of a multitude that no one can number. And I look in this room and I see many Gentile faces. Maybe all of us are Gentiles from many different nations. And we're kind of represented here in this story by the Magi leading the way, leading the crowds towards Jesus. And in the story, we see, don't we, the the magnetic power of the Son of God. He's doing nothing but being a toddler, doing toddler things, and yet somehow, by supernatural power, the child Jesus is drawing people from far away to himself through his glory and his grace. Jesus is the desire of the nations. Perhaps the Magi were tempted to stay. They had come so far. They had been so obsessed with this prophecy. I'm sure there was some kind of desire to stay and see what would happen, what the future held for this king of whom the heavens had spoken. And yet, they're warned by an angel to return to their own country by another route, to escape Herod and go back home, perhaps to be a witness to the one who was born, not just to be the king of the Jews, but the savior of the world. This story at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel reminds us that Jesus is for all peoples. I have a painting I want to show you. Were you guys able to get it on the screen? There it is. This is a painting by uh, Sister Anne, who is an Indian nun who just passed away in 2019. She was from Andhra Pradesh, and she ran away from home to escape an arranged marriage, and she became a nun, and turned out she was a very talented painter. And here she's painted, among many biblical scenes, um, the story of the adoration of the Magi. Obviously in very Indian terms, and it's kind of hard to tell, but it, I almost wonder if that the one on the left there holding the gold is a woman. The story doesn't actually say there were three wise men, by the way. Could have been men and women. Um, but I love this painting because it shows how the story of Jesus is not just for the Jews or just for people with blue eyes and blonde hair. Jesus is for all peoples, and all peoples throughout the world come and worship the Christ. And, you know, we might have expected this story of the Magi to be, let's say, in the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is all about Jesus being for the nations. 
And yet, to our surprise, we find it in the most Jewish of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the only one of the Gospel writers who records the story of the Magi. Because the true purpose of Israel and the true purpose of the people of God is to be a blessing to all the nations, as Abraham was promised. Not to be small and narrow and cramped and exclusive, but to be open-armed and open-hearted and welcoming, to be a light on a hill to draw all people to the worship of God. And I think it's very significant that Matthew has the arrival of the Magi to Jerusalem at the beginning of his gospel, and then at the very end of the gospel, he has King Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, sending his disciples out to preach the gospel to all nations and baptize them and make disciples. You know, it's not enough for the church to wait passively for noble seekers to turn up. I hope we're ready when we come and we can answer their questions and bring them in. But we are the ones filled with joy at our own encounter with King Jesus who are then called to make the long and dangerous and exhausting and arduous journey ourselves to the faraway places, bearing the priceless gift of the gospel, announcing the good news of God's salvation to the whole world. You know, I think this story is a warning to us of the spiritual, against the spiritual complacency that Israel's religious leaders had at this time content with their comfortable situation, with their alliance with political power, who felt the arrival of Jesus and power and glory to be a danger and a threat. These were leaders who knew their Bible very well, who could just bring out Micah, boom, just like that. They could immediately point to the right text about Jesus, probably from memory, and yet clearly their hearts were very far from him. Here these magi have traveled months and months and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And these religious leaders are unwilling to go even five or six miles to the next town to encounter the Messiah. Comfortable, at ease, in control, far from God. We're called, really, to imitate the Magi, who were faithful to the very little light they had. They only had one revelation from God, a point of light in the dark sky, but they relentlessly followed that star to find the one that their hearts somehow longed to worship. We don't need that star. We have the word of God spoken clearly to us. And it invites all of us to come afresh to the child of God, to the promised one, to the Messiah, and fall on our own faces in worship. Not just with empty outward rituals, but offering ourselves and all that we have, our own gold and frankincense and myrrh, the most precious things we can give to Jesus, and surrender them to the true king, to the true 
shepherd. And I think the story also calls us to be like the star. Because Paul in Philippians chapter 2 exhorts the church there to shine among the pagan world like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And really, isn't the life ministry of every single one of us here to hover brightly over the place where Jesus is? To be a sign from God to people that the longing of their hearts is right here? You know, the star is not the point of the story. The star is not the star of the story, right? We don't know what happens to the star after they made Jesus. It seems to recede and vanish into the night sky. The point is, they have met the Christ. Here we are on Epiphany Sunday. All of us need a fresh revelation of Jesus for our own souls that we would find him to be the delight and the desire of our hearts and the answer to the deepest, most confused longings of our souls. And then we need to be the epiphany of God to the world, a light to the nations, preaching Jesus, the King of the Jews and the King of Kings. Shall we bow our heads and pray and ask for God to help us? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed Jesus to us. And we know that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws. And we thank you for your grace that has gone ahead of us, that has pointed the way, that has somehow impelled us towards Jesus. We pray, Lord, that our own hearts would not become comfortable and complacent uh, and absorbed in everything around Jesus and yet neglecting Jesus himself. Lord, it's only your Holy Spirit that can stir our hearts to new levels of worship, new passion, new desire. Help us come afresh to Jesus and bow down before him and offer him everything we have. And Lord, we pray that our, lights would, our lives would be a shining and burning light, pointing to Jesus, drawing people in worship and adoration to him in overwhelming joy. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Shall we stand and respond in worship? This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.